We're pausing our move through the Old Testament until the fall. We're spending some time in the Psalms this summer. That's been our habit for several years. We were just kind of jumping around, and then four or five years ago, we started just going sequentially through the Psalms. We didn't do it last year, but we're back into that because we believe the Psalms are a gift from the Lord to his people for navigating a chaotic world and for our own, our own soul. The Psalms are a gift to us, as it says on the front of that insert, uh, about halfway through, though separated by language, culture, and generations, the Psalms are still the inspired and reliable guide to our own hearts and a constant help in honestly navigating the chaos of our world with God-honoring, Christ-centered, hope-filled resiliency. Sometimes it's really messy when you know because life is like really messy. And the Psalms don't help us avoid mess, but I think if we're honest with ourselves and before the Lord, what happens is they, as we map our affections and our thoughts and our thinking onto them in community, they provide a way through all that mess together. Uh, Not that it's clean, not that it's easy. And today we're looking at Psalm 42 because we left off last time with Psalm 41. Psalm 42 for me has been especially helpful in my life. Psalm 42 and Psalm 62. Now, Psalm 42 and 43 probably originally were one psalm, and they were broken apart sometime in canonical history, so we're going to treat them as two psalms. But Psalm 42 and Psalm 62 were helpful to me because uh, my, my earthly father died about eight years ago. And before that, for as long as I can remember, he was afflicted by what was a diagnosed condition of borderline, um, borderline affective personality disorder and paranoid schizophrenia. So if you know anything about that, I mean, he didn't know the name of our kids for the last 20 years of his life, um, or my wife's name. So that was an interesting childhood, to say the least. There's some interesting things happen when your dad is, has those conditions. And uh, I have to confess that as I began to mature as a man, as we, I got married, so early 20s, I, see some person, I saw some personality traits that were the same in my life as were in my dad's. Now, not the mental illness part, but as a son is often like his father, and it began to concern me. Might have concerned Carmen as well, I'm not sure. Um, and I began to think, like, what, what is it that would keep me from kind of moving down that path of being totally reactive to everything in the environment with hostility and paranoia, that's a paranoid schizophrenia, or completely dissociating and creating an alternate reality. And it was at that point where I kind of came across, I don't know that I would have done that, right? But like, it was definitely a fear. But it was at that point I came across Psalm 42 and Psalm 62, and they did something for me by introducing a concept that I wasn't aware of or just hadn't connected in my life at that point. And since then, over about 30 years of ministry, my experience is that for most Christians, it's either something that's really easy to forget or something we've not actually been depth introduced to. This is a very simple reality, but very profound. Psalm 42 and Psalm 62 teaches us that we actually have the authority and power to speak to our own soul, our own internal disposition, that we can challenge our soul, that we can question our soul. We can speak to ourselves in a way that causes us eventually, perhaps, not to be so reactive, not to be so anxious, not to be so fearful to the world around us. 
So that requires first seeing that there is an internal reality, our soul, that directs us. And then with authority speaking to it. This is authority empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we are about to, we're going to go to the communion table in a few minutes. Right? We, we do this because we read the Psalms differently than the psalmist did when he wrote them. When whoever wrote this, this is, this is not David, this is one of the sons of Korah, whoever that happened to be. We see that it's pointing to a Jesus who is magnificently generous to us. That we have all these treasures in Christ that are always on offer, that we take to ourselves by faith, and that we sometimes forget that, and we get all crusty and hazy, and we think we're all alone, and what happens is we come back to the gospel and realize, oh, Jesus still loves us like he always has, and he always offers these things. But we, I think it's good to let the Psalms like honestly drive us into these things so we can take this goodness to ourselves. This guy in Psalm 42, as we're going to read in a second, is wrestling with despair and discouragement and darkness and fear fear and anxiety, all this jumble of mess together. He's out of his depth, he's over his head, and he does something. So let us, if you will, take your insert and open it up. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read this antiphonally. I'm going to read the part, you're going to read verses 5 and 11, the bolded part, and I'm going to read the other parts. There's some little parentheses at 5 and 11, don't read those. I forgot to say that at the first service, and people reading the parentheses. Okay, here we go. Hear the angst in this guy's voice and see what he does. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your ways have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Okay, in this despair, darkness, anxiety, fear, what does the psalmist do? What's well, what you just did, right? You spoke to your soul through the psalm. You read the part where he turns inward and speaks to his own soul. So I want to just ask three questions of this. Why do we speak to our soul? What do we say and how do we say it? Why do we speak to our soul? What do we say and how do we say it? First of all, why do we speak to our soul? Verse 1 as the deer, as a deer, pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Soul has a wide range of meaning in Hebrew. This just means the internal state, the internal disposition of the person. 
Here he is saying, my soul pants for you. My soul, my internal reality is built to desire something that makes other things pale in comparison. My soul is built to desire something that makes other things pale in comparison. There was one year of my life, I was about 21, where I did not cook for myself. Where I did cook for myself, sorry. (laughs) Every other year, somebody else cooked for me. In that one year where I cooked for myself, I lost 25 pounds. Now, while you can say now, while you can say that, do that again, I wasn't the case back then. Uh, And I mostly lost 25 pounds because my diet was one thing, Aldi macaroni and cheese. And I'm sure it's caloric, but you can only eat so much, right? And so, you know what? Aldi mac and cheese is not too bad. Some of you can attest. We got married, and then we were making the big bucks because my wife was working as a secretary as I was in grad school, you know. But it was enough money to upgrade our budget, our food budget, to craft macaroni and cheese. And, you know, craft macaroni and cheese wrecks Aldi macaroni and cheese. After you've had craft, you can never go back to Aldi without a sense of longing. You can eat Aldi and say, okay, it's so good, but I know there's something better. Right? It's that, that, that changed palate changes your desires, and when you don't have it, you're longing for it. Craft is really good. Two Fridays ago, we went on our 27th anniversary to Ruth Chris and had Ruth Chris lobster mac and cheese. I don't know if you've had it. It's only $30 for a little bowl. Can I tell you this? Ruth Chris lobster mac and cheese wrecks craft macaroni and cheese. Now, I can have craft again, and I'm sure I will, but as I eat, that new palate has caused a longing in me for the ultimate lobster mac and cheese. Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, is telling us this. In, in, a, in a real way, the gospel of Jesus wrecks the people of God. The gospel opens up a satisfaction we didn't know existed before. But it makes everything else pale in comparison. The, the psalmist describes it here as a deer panting for, for streams of living water. I'm not sure what the whole deer thing is, but the deer is parsh. He's about to die. It's about to die, and it just has to get to this stream. Maybe because of when a deer is drinking, it's vulnerable. It's willing to risk everything else in vulnerability to, to uh, predators to get to this water because it's what it has to have. The psalmist is saying, my soul is built for something that I have to have, and it's leaving me longing for everything else, and right now I'm not experiencing it. I'm not experiencing this fellowship with God that I know that I'm aware of. Right? The gospel, in the gospel, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the beauty of Jesus and all that is in him and the fullness and the freedom that's in Christ and the folly of, of pursuing other things, the, the folly of pursuing the stuff the world values or is, gets antsy when we don't have. Uh, it makes everything else pale in comparison, but when, you, when you're experientially missing that, you begin to long. And we speak to our soul because that's the ground of where that reorientation happens. He's disoriented internally. When you've tasted the Lord and then your experience wanes, you have this internal disorientation. And so you speak to your soul, that internal reality, because that's the ground where we get righted, we get reoriented. This is only by the power of the Spirit, of course. 
Um, now, I realize if you're not in Christ, you may never have tasted that, and this may sound foreign to you, though I think there are probably pointers in your life that are saying there's, there's probably more that, to experience in this life than you've experienced. But even if we have tasted that goodness in Christ, what's true, I know in my own life, is that we can get used to maybe a semi-dehydrated state, right? We can just get used to less. And if it goes on long enough, we become satisfied with that. And we need to let something like Psalm 42 shake us out of that. Our soul's made for something that's rich and beautiful and good. And he's experiencing a disruption. Now, oftentimes, along with this, there is an external disruption, as it was in his life. Something has come into our life we didn't ask for, that happened to us, that we didn't choose, that just came in. Or maybe we didn't make the choice, but we didn't know how big of an explosion it would cause in our life. It's just something that's disrupting our life. That's often in conjunction with this internal spiritual thirst. Here it is enemy. So if you look at verse 2, the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and bef- appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they, who, know, who knows who they are, say to me all day long, Where is your God? So apparently in some way he's being mocked or publicly ridiculed in humiliation. This shows up again later in the psalm. So there's an enemy. We don't know what the situation is. Maybe it was a king who was being pursued. And, but what was also happening is that because of these enemies, maybe he's stuck out in the wilderness, it looks like, he, he's cut off from this source of life called corporate worship. That phrase, when shall I come and appear before God, is a specific phrase in Hebrew that refers to worshiping with God's people, corporate worship. So because of these enemies, they're mocking him publicly, they're shaming him publicly, and somehow they prevented him, maybe his life is threatened, he cannot go into corporate worship. He's away from this rhythm that is a gift to bring sanity in a, in a chaotic world. Uh, now that, that is hard for us as Americans to get when we talk about corporate worship, because basically, here's what you are all doing right now in the default mode. Not all of you, but we, we struggle with as American churchgoers, this, like the Roman emperors. You know, that sermon kind of sucks right now. You've got to get it up. Oh, the music was really good, but the, oh, they forgot the, the second page of that song. That's no good. Like, we're always like in this, this consumer mode when we're judging everything. Do I like it? Do I not like it? Do, what do I think about this? What do I think about that? It's so easy to forget that actually the word for worship is service, our service to God. Worship is a worship service. Not We're not serving you. We are all serving the Lord. That's what worship means. That's a hard thing to remember sort of like in a consumer society. And also the, the value of community in an individual society is less. But this is what the psalmist is along. He's broken because he can't be with God's people. And, you know, I realize that we, when we're not with God's people, are like, well, that, that, that happened this week. Oh, well. He's broken over this. So um, I want to just do a little aside here in this sermon. This is something I almost never do. And if you are visiting with us, you just have to trust me on that. Um, if you're here a little bit of time, just... Trust me on that. And ask somebody who's been here a long time. I'm, sometimes I stand right behind this as if this is a pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, and you must do this and believe this. And sometimes I'll stand over here and say, you know, here's an interesting thought. What about this? I, I'm not quite sure. So I want to say something from right here. I almost never do that. So I want to consider this a biblically informed, strong opinion that I want to give to you, okay? Um, now, I don't mind if you disagree with me. Just come and tell me how you where I'm wrong, and use the scripture, 
okay? Um, and I'm saying, I'm going to say this to you because uh, I love you. And I want your best health, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally. If you'll turn in your insert to the back page. Remember, this guy is broken because he cannot come and be with the God's people in corporate worship. He, uh, before we get there, actually, if he, rem- he remembers in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's longing for this opportunity to do this. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, period. And we say, amen. That is beautiful. That's awesome. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We've got a way into the Holy of Holies, a high priest who intercedes for us, who's praying for us right now, who gives us all we need, who anticipates, who moves towards us in our weakness and our failings and our sin and our failures. We love it. And he is faithful. He will hold us fast. And it's beautiful. And then it continues. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another with love and good works. Amen. That's so good. That's what community groups are for. We're doing that. We're encouraging each other. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Okay. Let me be very clear and frank just for a moment here. First, you are justified by Jesus Christ and him alone. Your behavior will not make God love you more, and it will not make him love you less. You are free in Christ. You are called to a life in Christ. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. His lordship is true and enduring forever and ever. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. What you need to know about Hebrews is it's a book to a gathered church. right? So they're reading this in a worship gathering. The meeting together is a corporate gathering of worship. It is not saying... Most people read that as saying this. Don't get into the habit of not meeting together. That is not what this is saying. It's saying don't do the thing that other people do habitually. Let's change it a little bit. If it says do not neglect to brush your teeth as some are in the habit of doing, and you had a child, 10-year-old son, and he didn't brush his teeth that night, you would have said, uh, hey, did you brush your teeth? And he said, nope. Why didn't you brush your teeth? Well, it's not a habit. He said, but you did neglect to brush your teeth, did you not? Yes, but it's not a habit. Like, but I didn't, t- it's not, that's a bad habit, yes, but I said don't neglect brushing your teeth. Right? It's not, do not make it a habit, but do not do the thing that others do habitually. Right? I'm standing right here now. Um, there is a gift the Lord has given to his people for our regular encouragement strengthening and alignment with his purposes for our joy our hope our clarity of thinking and our insight what is it gathering together in corporate worship 
and giving ourselves to that worship. I'm not talking about driving by and standing, you know, somewhere in the back and walking. Like giving yourself to worship and gathering in worship. It's a gift of the Lord. Why is it? Well, gathering together in corporate worship in that Jesus is exalted in a different way than he is in our private worship. Okay? Private worship is awesome. Corporate worship is designed by God and commanded by God because Jesus is exalted in a different way. And we are transformed. Think about how the people of God are shaped when we gather together with people. We are reminded and we're connected with the reality that we are in a true story, the true story of the whole world in a world that has a billion different narratives. There's one drumbeat of the gospel. We are, we are reconnected with the reality that this story is not first about me. We can't come and worship around and looking like the people in this room, like, well, this is all about me. We can't do that. We, we say this is all people gather because it's about another. I'm not the biggest person in this narrative. I'm not the biggest person in this story. We come and we realize, you know, there is a reason to hope. There is a reason for calmness. There is a reason for lack of fear. And all the, even if I feel frail in offering my puny little voice that's a little bit off key, all these other people are singing and saying the same thing. There is a reason we're in this together. We're in the same story together. My problems are not bigger than the Lord. And all these other people have come together, whether it's 10 other people or, you know, 10,000 other people in a megachurch, we're saying together, our problems are not bigger than the Lord. There is one who's much bigger than all the problems we have to come and offer. We're in part of a wider family, and a wider family in the whole world that shares this vision in a world that may not. And might I add, we're also created for a weekly rhythm. We know this. It's in creation. Okay. So, again, let me, let me be very frank. Start with, you're justified by Jesus. You can't make him love you more or love you less. Let me put a fine point on this. Unless we are providentially hindered, that means a providential hindrance is just fancy theology talk for something you didn't control, didn't choose, can't control. Like this psalmist, right? Like being ill, like your kids being ill, like having just given birth, right? Kind of chose that. Well, I have to talk to your husband about that. But, um, Providential hindrance, unless we're providentially hindered, we should not neglect to meet together in worship. Why? Because Hebrews 10 says this. Because it honors the Lord. Because it's good for us and we're made for it. So let me give a loving challenge to the people of New City Church. And this has most to do with when you're not around, but um, for your own mental and spiritual health and the shaping of your family, here's my loving challenge to you. Okay, ready? Never miss corporate worship unless you're providentially hindered in doing so. Illness, illness of a family, you know, the real providential hindrances. Now, is this hard sometimes? Yes, of course. It's totally hard. It's, all, it's often hard. Uh, I get it. We've, we invest in valuable things. And the harder something is, the more formational it is in our life. Now, I want to encourage you, be creative, but be firm on this. Be creative, be firm. Like, you know, you could be a, like a Hebrew Lord's Day. Per, like, so the Lord's Day starts at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. Fine, okay? We're gathering together. That's how Hebrews see it. Uh, there's morning worship. There's early morning service. There's, 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 there's uh, services, sometimes night services, whatever. But this is what we're made for. It honors the Lord. Uh, be creative, but firm. 
right? Part of the reason, and I'm just going to, this, I, I neglect to say at the top, I know this is a total minefield, and there's no way I can tiptoe through it, and so we're just doing the minesweeper thing, just going to blow everything up. Um, and so some of you might have a little H hostility toward me. That's fine. Just come and tell me why I'm wrong and use the Bible. But um, we stopped the live stream. You know why? It's not real worship. It's not the embodied reality we're made for. The word virtual means a replica of something. That's what the word virtual reality means. It's a replica of something real. Um, Now, I realize if there's a providential reason you can't be, you're sick. I get that. And so it's really a wrestling through that. But we realize actually a lot of people are just using a substitute. So, sorry. Um, So let me just touch a few landmines here. But I understand the tension. So I I love you. I'm saying this because I love you. Consider this biblically informed, strong opinion of a pastor who loves you. Talk about four things. One, vacation. Okay? When you're traveling on vacation, please be part of corporate worship. Why? Because I think that's what Hebrews 10 says. Now, if you think I'm, am I saying, is Roger saying, we should rearrange all of our family and travel schedule and go out of our way to honor the Lord in public worship? If you think that's what I'm saying, you are hearing me correctly. Right. Jesus is a disruptive influence in our life. We can't, let him, we can't say he's a disruptive influence and, except when it's inconvenient. That's the whole point of disruption. Okay. What if we're traveling on Sunday? Okay, that's not a providential hindrance. That's a choice you made, right? And besides, you've got a smartphone, and somewhere between where you are and where you're going, there's a lot of great churches, right? Um, but I understand, right? We have found churches on the road lots of times. In Wisconsin, Florida, Tennessee, Montana, Missouri, Illinois, Michigan, Spain, Mexico, and South Africa, right? Some of these churches I wouldn't go back to if I had to choose. But all of them are God's people coming together and saying, we're in a story together. It's a formative, it honors the Lord, and it's formative for me. It's formative for us. And by the way, I think it's especially formative on the road. Some of you I've really challenged, like on vacation, you don't take your, you don't go to worship, and I've challenged you on that. And if I haven't, just because we haven't had the conversation. This is especially helpful for your children. What's it say to them? It says, mom and dad consider Jesus to be more important than our comfort. Boy, that, I don't know if there's anything better you can teach your kids. Right? Um, so vacation. The Colts, Okay. I love the Colts. I love football. I play football in high school. I play football in college. Love the Colts. Okay, Colts games don't start till one o'clock or four o'clock. We have a nine o'clock service. Redeemer has an eight thirty service. Surely there's a way to go to an eight thirty nine o'clock service and still make kickoff by one o'clock, right? Um, now, what if your friends are tailgating at nine a.m.? You know the bratwurst didn't die for your tone, to tone for your sins. I don't know what to tell you. And Bud Light at nine a.m. is probably terrible. So. Um, you just have to tell them, no, it's okay. Uh, let, me tell, let me give you one I have no affinity for and then one I have a deep affinity for, okay? The Indianapolis 500. I have zero affinity for the 500. I really don't care about it at all. I have no, I've never had a desire to sit at a hot place with loud, drunk people and watch guys circle um, and a few girls. But uh, there is an 8.30 service at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. You could go to that and still make the race. If it's like, well, the traffic is too bad, we'll never make the race by going to 830 service, we had to skip church. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Can I just tell you, gathering for corporate worship is more important than a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. 
And there's two types of people in the world, that, those who believe what I just said and those who don't. We're talking about the one who died and lives for us. I'm not saying you should skip the race. If they put it at 11 o'clock again like they used to, you should skip the race. No doubt about it. That's just kind of thumbing your nose at the church. Um, so I, am I saying you should consider missing the Indianapolis 500 just to honor the Lord in public worship? Yes. I'm saying that. Now, maybe you can do both. Great. Be creative, but be firm. Why? We're made for this. It honors Jesus. Okay. Finally, one I do have great affinity for. This will really challenge some. Here we go. Let's talk about it before. You knew it was coming. Youth sports on Sunday morning are toxic. Increasingly, soccer, football, baseball, I don't know. We're probably missing some. Uh, do you mean, Roger, that I should limit my children's future opportunities to honor the Lord on the Lord's Day? Definitely, that's what I'm saying, without question. Now, I understand this, right? I understand this. I had a son who had multiple Division I opportunities to play soccer. Right? Multiple. Would he have had more had we done all the way through this Sunday morning traveling? Yes. He would have had a lot more opportunities. At the cost of teaching him that soccer is more important about Jesus. I'm not, we can't do that, guys. If we do that, would we, should we be surprised down the road that sometimes your kid says, you know what, I think something else is more important about Jesus. We can't, we can't be surprised at that if we teach them that, you know, three, five, seven, 12 times a year, over and over again for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 18 years of their life before they go. All right. All right. Okay, that, that's it. So I don't do that very, I don't do that very often, but um, now I've got to get you back for the rest of the sermon, okay? And I know that's a tricky thing if you're a little bit hostile right now. Again, come and talk to me. Bring your Bible. Okay, number two, what do we say? Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We say the truth. We take true things and bring it to bear on our soul. And our soul doesn't want this. We know this because it's, it's both at the same time cast down, low, and in turmoil, fighting. So it's, it's like it's depressed, but it's resilient and rebellious at the same time. So when I want to bring truth to my soul, when I'm in despair, my soul is like, no, no. I don't want it. It's kind of like if you ever had a dog that is sick and you got to give the dog a pill that you can't grind up and put it in its hamburger. How do you give a dog a pill? You got to force the mouth open, put the pill in, close the mouth until he just submits and swallows that pill. Maybe there's a better way. I don't know what it is. This is what my soul has to do with truth, and I have to do with my soul with truth in these times. It does, it's in turmoil and it's cast down. It doesn't want to hear from me. So it's like, um, I shall again praise him. Soul, Roger, soul, Jesus will see us through this. And my soul responds, I'm not so sure about that. I'm pretty sure I'm all alone and we're going to die. And that's our soul's disposition in this situation. You know, soul, Romans 8, right? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger or sword? No, by all these, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the soul's like, yeah, I'm different. Right, this, we're, our soul does not want this. Right, Psalm 18, the Lord is on your side. You need not fear. What can man do? And my soul's like, maybe. 
Roger, your soul, Hebrews 13, the Lord will never leave you, never forsake you. Colossians 3, you've died, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and your soul is just resistant to this. And we keep pressing that truth on our soul over and over and over again, teaching to ourselves, talking to ourselves, taking it to ourselves. It is a gift the Lord has empowered us to do by His Spirit. We say true things to, this, to our soul. He is my salvation. Literally here in, this, in verse 5, uh, it says... Um, I put it in in parentheses. The Hebrew is like, for the salvation of his face, right? God will save me and I will be aware of his presence. His face is his presence. Soul, what is waiting for you is the experience of a personal loving God. You're hazy right now. You can't see it. But behind that haze is a smiling face. You got to keep preaching that to ourselves. Secondly, it's not just the truth. It's the things that we learn in the light. Verse 8, By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In the moments of darkness, we, take, we bring to mind the things we learn in the light. In the moments of darkness, we bring to mind the things we learn in the light. That's why we're committed to giving ourselves to Scripture and to prayer and to learning songs of worship and to good fellowship and community and to good teaching. So in the times of complete despair, when the darkness sets in, the arsenal is full. It's very hard to find things in the dark if you don't know where they are. Right? So that's why we're committed to like this truth when we're in the light. Maybe right now we just sang that song. We'll sing a song at the end. We, you know... We're not going to be left. We're not going to be forsaken. We need that so in the times of despair we, can, we know where that arsenal is to bring it out and press it onto our soul. Three, how do we say it? First with honesty. Deep calls to deep, verse 7, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He, he's slaying us at the Lord. Your waves, Lord, you're crushing me and washing me away. It's like you're totally washing me away. I'm going to die. That's what it feels like. And I don't know if you feel like you have this freedom before the Lord to speak this way. We, we do it in humility. But this is his real experience of what's going on. It's like, he's, he's, first he's talking about his enemies, and he's like, Lord, it's your breakers and your waves are doing this. You're destroying me here. What's happening? So we want to have honesty with humility. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? That's what it feels like, Lord. You've forgotten me. Especially if we're in a prolonged, protracted difficulty. Maybe it's a physical difficulty or a family difficulty. It just seems so, so tiring. It's like, Lord, have you forgotten me? Now, even articulating that, what happens is we say, okay, he hasn't really forgotten us. It just seems like he has. But I find in my own life, if I don't give articulation to those internal churnings, they have a power to just block fellowship with the Lord. I'm sure there's a more technical way to say that, but just if I, don't give, if I don't give words to it, they have more power to disrupt fellowship with the Lord. He continues, Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with de- a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Right? They're just mocking him, but he's like, it's killing me. Right? I'm going to die here. Criticism, mockery, feels like you're going to die sometimes. So, He's honest, but then there's a forcefulness here. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? It's a challenging question. Why are you like this? Roger, why are you like this? Now, we live in a world where basically what happens is 
Why are you like this? And your soul says, I'm downcast. And we're like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'll just leave you alone. That's fine. That is not what we see here. We see the psalmist saying, I'm going to take you to task, soul. He's talking to his own self. Now, I realize if you, are pro, if you are especially prone to darkness and despair and discouragement and anxiety, this is challenging. You may even, like, just bristle under this a little bit. You may not like that I'm saying this. I want you to see this. This is the Lord's words. The psalmist saying, here's a grace gift you can fight. Fight your own soul. Um, I'm downcast. And we say back to our soul, no. I'm going to challenge that. I want to challenge your downcast in the soul. We're all alone here, says the soul. And we challenge back. Did you forget the Spirit of God and the body of Christ? My soul says, this is going to turn out terribly, Roger. We challenge back. How do you know? How do you know how it ought to turn out, by the way, soul? This is never going to get better. Well, soul, since when did you become all-knowing? Right? So we challenge our soul with questions. And we challenge ourselves with commands. As you see the command, hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, my salvation, my God. This is the psalmist not giving his soul uh, an encouragement, not giving his soul a suggestion. Maybe you should hope, hope in God. Hope in God. So I want to close with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones on the front of your worship booklet from a wonderful book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor who became a surgeon who became a pastor in Britain. He lived through World War I, was ministering, pastoring through the Great Depression and World War II. In London, if you know your history of World War II, half the time they thought they were just going to get overrun by the Germans at any moment. So it's a despairing time. Shortly after, he, he writes this. I suggest that the main trouble in the whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this that we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Just think about that sentence. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are, talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you so cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God has done and has pledged to do. Then, end on this great note, and I love this, defy yourself. Speaking to our souls, defying ourselves. Because the soul speaks back. You defy your own soul. And defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with the man in Psalm 42, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance and the one who is my salvation and my God. Honestly, forcefully, and finally, continually. That refrain is repeated in verse 5. And then what happens? Nothing. He just sees more of his enemy. (laughs) 
Okay, it's repeated in verse 11. Okay, and then what happens? Well, chapter 43 happens, and it was, used to be one psalm. Nothing. And then it ends with verse, uh, five, the last verse of chapter 43, and it says the same thing over and over again, preaching to his soul. And we don't even know if there's any resolution. We don't know if this is resolution, but we do know it's the way through. It's like if I wanted to get, if you want to get strong, you're like, oh, can I, I'm going to have a birthday, I'm going to get a lot stronger. You go to the gym one time and lift some weights, like all the weights you can lift. And you wake up the next morning, it's like, that didn't work at all. I'm just sore. Well, that's not how strength works. You need to go to the gym more than once, more than twice. You need to have a continual reality. As the people of God, we are secured by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we have the freedom to say, why so downcast, O oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. And I love the way this ends. And I included the parentheses in there just so there's a little nuance in the Hebrew that a lot of your English translations gloss over. The end of verse 11, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In verse 5, it was uh, praise him for the salvation of his face, like one day God's presence will be with me again. But at the end, he's like, God is the one. Who is the salvation of my faith? It gets personalized. Part of wrestling with our soul and wrestling it to the ground. This is like hand-to-hand combat with our soul. It's like a street fight with our soul right here. As we begin to see there's a real God who's real and personal and for me. A person completely committed to me so I can fight to hold on to him and I will eventually see that he's been holding on to me the entire time. Part of the reason we go to the communion table as we have a God who holds on to us and is completely, personally committed to blessing us and doing us good. We have one in Jesus who went into the very deepest darkness for us so we can be assured that whatever darkness we're going into is not and cannot be the deepest darkness. We have one in Jesus who went into the deepest darkness for us so we can be assured that every other darkness we go into, he is more than capable to go into with us. Right? Part of the other gift of corporate worship is we come each week and come to the table. We, with multi-sensory perception, taste of the goodness of Jesus. If you're in Christ, I want to say the table is open to you. We invite those who say, say in their, their soul and would say with their lips, I receive and rest on Jesus alone as he's offering the gospel, and I want his lordship in my life and over my life. If that's you, we want you to come to the table and taste of this goodness that empowers us to wrestle and hold on to this goodness only to see that that goodness has been holding on to you the whole time.